All right, great. So let's continue this now with Madness and Civilization from about midway through. That is chapter six, titled Doctors and Patients. So contrary to kind of positivist medical approach, Foucault says that hospitals, like many non-hospital places in which the mad were kind of confined, did not uh, seek to cure treat madness. At least not in like a, you know, rational, supposedly natural, uh, rational, scientific way. Instead, they had very different ways of, of approaching madness that was that didn't abide by, you know, a positivist account that we often ascribe to the treatment of madness throughout history. So there are four things that he presents, four kind of ways in which they approached madness. The first was what he called consolidation. So this was the idea that madness in itself implied a kind of weakness. So to be mad meant to be weak, meant to be devoid of certain faculties that would make you a, a stable, reasonable being. So what, uh, in order to combat that, there was a, an elaboration, a kind of emphasis on robustness in a, in a kind of drive to make people more firm and stable. So of this, he writes on 161, but there's probably no better fortifying procedure than the use of the substance, which is both the most solid and the most docile, the most resistant, but the most pliable in the hands of the man who knows how to forge it to his purposes, iron. Iron unites in its privileged nature all those qualities that quickly become contradictory when they are isolated. Nothing resists better, nothing can better obey. It is a gift of nature, but it is also at the disposal of all of man's techniques. So it's a really absurd way to approach, at least from our standpoint, an absurd way to approach healing someone with, you know, iron being like the kind of um, the symbol for that opposition to instability. But that's what Foucault is doing here, showing us the many different ways that people adapted to, people sought to correct, people sought to deal with madness, and how it wasn't simply a kind of theological movement where, you know, there was a problem identified and that various, you know, experiments were conducted to try and figure out real, you know, cures to the problem and so on and so forth, but rather even up to today, the ways that we approach madness has its roots in the what we consider today to be, you know, the uh, irrational, rel simply irrational relics of the past. But I digress. So then we move into the next one here, the next sought after cure, and that was the idea of purification. So it was it was believed that to be mad meant to be impure, like through your blood. Your your as was mentioned in the last video, the first half of the book, uh, the the bile's could be out of order, or you could have an imbalance or anything like that. But your blood could even be considered to be impure. So what one thing they would do would be to swap in pure blood for a light, clear blood, or sorry, swap impure blood for a light, uh, clear blood, he writes, which is, you know, pretty self-explanatory. And then uh, the third thing, or the third cure was immersion. So that's the plunge into water, which was conceived to be or believed to be the purest of all liquids. Uh, and this was, this was happening up to the end of the 17th century that people were doing this uh, because it was you know, water was attached with a kind of significance like that. And then fourth, uh, and finally, there was the regulation of movement. So if madness is 
view it as an agitation of the spirits. It doesn't come as a surprise that in order to combat that, people thought that, you know, making people immobile, shackling them up, holding them still would be a way to combat that, would be a way to kind of make the person more uh, obedient, docile. So, and this was, you know, like in an Aristotelian fashion, this wasn't completely to foreclose movement, but simply to regulate it, to find, you know, the golden mean, the kind of in-between, the most acceptable social uh, limit point. And because of that, it was also believed that to, um, to instill, to kind of introduce a rhythm to movement would serve this function as well, because a rhythm can be controlled and mandated, whereas, you know, to be an erratic mad person meant you were out of control. So these four cures serve the end of kind of fixing the mad, so to speak, or curing them, purifying them, which was essentially the task of wresting the mad person from their non-being, as was presented in the first half. And what all these uh, efforts point to in the desire to kind of cure the non-being of madness to a general shift in the way that madness was perceived. So he writes on 177, so movement no longer aimed at restoring the invalid to the truth of the exterior world, but only at producing a series of internal effects, purely mechanical and purely psychological. It was no longer the presence of the truth that determined the cure, but a functional norm. In this reinterpretation of the old method, the organism was no longer related to anything but itself and its own nature, while in the initial version, what was to be restored was its relation with the world, its essential link with being and the truth. If we add that the rotatory machine, rotatory, rotatory machine was soon used as a threat and a punishment, we see the impoverishment of the meanings which had richly sustained the therapeutic methods throughout the entire classical period. Medicine was now content, content sorry, to regulate and to punish with means which had once served to exercise sin, to dissipate error in the restoration of madness to the world's obvious truth. Which is, I think, speaks volumes of the way that it was treated then, but the way, you know, we could see that logic continue today, where, you know, these kinds of um, methods are imposed onto bodies in such a way as to try to render people normal, which doesn't abide by some kind of like transcendent truth, as though there's like a, an absolute way of being, but simply about making people proper within a very specific kind of social, you know, situation. And this becomes all the more possible when something like the soul is evacuated of any kind of quote-unquote transcendent meaning, and everything is reduced to a kind of material standpoint, and a materiality that is reduced to the psyche in the body, and, and then the body, where, you know, you have very material brain that manifests, you know, various illnesses, ailments, anything like that in a material way, because the body acts, as he mentioned in the first half, through various qualities that can be identified and then, you know, worked on, which ultimately brings it back to a very material understanding of it. But this still, even though it's, it all kind of belongs to a material domain, it still marks a split right? Like the split I mentioned between the psyche and the body, between, you know, mind and body, all these kinds of things. So he says that this difference, this kind of demarcation, uh, only begins to exist in all its profundity, the day when fear is no longer used as a method for arresting movement, but as a punishment, 
when joy does not signify organic expansion but reward, when anger is nothing more than a response to concerted humiliation. In short, when the 19th century, by inventing its famous moral methods, has brought madness and its cure into the domain of guilt. As though, he's saying, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong in relation to, you know, the social paradigm, cultural paradigm or whatever, about madness. And by virtue of that, it must be corrected. And it is then that this demarcation comes about because madness is then associated with, you know, the mind, what's going on in the mind. So then he says, psychology as a means of curing is henceforth organized around punishment. And this punishment also participated in this split because it wasn't the mind that would be affected, it was the body. It was the body that would be whipped in order to make up for the problems going on in the mind. So that just reinforced the idea that there was this kind of inherent split between the two. And as a result, we see the reemergence of a split between passion and delirium, where passion is associated with the body and delirium associated with reason or, you know, the kind of moral compass by which someone engages with the world. So the passions are what, you know, affects the body at the level of the blood and the bile and all that kind of stuff. Whereas reason being that thing that belongs to the mind ostensibly and delirium being that uh, moment that someone doesn't see the world or has some kind of, you know, problem in their perce perceiving the world, which is a task of the brain. So that's how in this way we see this reemergence of that split. Again, this being evidence of a kind of return to a, you know, quote unquote, archaic way of approaching the matter, not through some kind of medical scientific process. So then keep, if we consider now how there's this reemergence of the passions and delirium, Foucault says that there were three ways to approach that split, that, that, that reemergence of that split, where he gives us uh, yeah, three approaches. Uh, he says that the, the way that this, the pr person suffering from delirium would be approached or sought to be cured was through an awakening where it was viewed as though the person suffering from delirium was simply caught in a, in a dream and that they must be brought back into the domain of reality in order to be taken out of, um, to be taken out of that kind of uh, comatose state. So the physician then marked what Foucault calls a kind of authoritarian intervention into the dream to bring them back into reality. So even this changes over time, though, uh, where the physician ultimately becomes a kind of moralist, because that is what happens with power. Power becomes normalized, and then uh, the way that it is enforced is not through direct, overt means, but rather through its being integrated into the very social fabric to the point that it becomes the norm or the moral. So that's the first one, and then the second one is theatrical representation. So this was a very different approach. What this sought to do was to kind of play into the so-called delirium of the mad person to essentially play the same game. So if someone was saying um, that, you know, they thought themselves to be the king of France, well, the people there, the physicians, would say, okay, if you are the king of France, make us stop doing this. To which that was supposedly supposed to make the person realize that they were weren't actually the king of France and to kind of rest them from that uh, dream, that kind of delusion 
through that means, not by a kind of, you know, um, violent waking up, but by a slow participatory mechanism. And like a good example of this that we see today, and which is funny that we still see it represented in popular culture, is actually on the show Friends. And if you aren't familiar with the show, this will probably land on deaf ears. But there's an episode when one of Joey's, who's a character in the show, who happens to be an actor within the show, uh, one of his fans uh, becomes completely enamored with him, but doesn't believe him to be an actor, but believes him to actually be the character. So in order to get her to stop stalking him, essentially, he and another one of his friends um, play into her, what, in air quotes, her delusion, to essentially say that, yeah, this this actor has, this character, sorry, has like a, I forget what they say, that it's like, uh, he can't be in love with her because he, like, he's too worried he's going to fall too hard for her and that it'll get in the way of his work as a, as whatever his job is in his um, character's role. I think it's doctor. Um, so that because of that, she must leave him. And, and she does. So that is an example of this kind of theatrical representation in in the uh, with the desire with the aim of kind of correcting madness and then number three so finally the return of the immediate uh, which is ultimately just to bring madness into the spectral light of truth into reality which is a lot like the awakening one but it's uh, like actually putting people outside and like nature and stuff like that um, which is Foucault writes that this was kind of seen as the kind of purest cure because it was the cure without cure because nature was so naturalized that it was so transparent that to do that or to employ this method was to simply bring someone into reality, which is so innocuous and ubiquitous that it's just a totally present thing. And because of that, it was seen as not being an actual intervention, but just a you know, simple making someone in tune with what is already there. But this should be clarified a bit because Foucault says that it shouldn't be understood as a kind of return to nature as nature is understood through civilization. That is, as nature is understood as a kind of uh, beastliness or animalness, but because that would imply a kind of another um, instability, a kind of deterritorialization where he says that the only way this works is because nature itself has been domesticated. It has been domesticated under the auspices of truth and law, which makes it so that any return to it marks a return to truth and law, and therefore order and reason, yada, yada, yada. So all of these tactics essentially take the mad person out of any kind of autonomous subject position, rest them from that, you know, make them simply subjects to a kind of punishing psychology. So it's just to conclude this chapter, Foucault gives credence to Freud while at the same time uh, criticizing him, where he says that, you know, all that we could say negatively about Freud, that is in Freud's, you know, maintenance of a kind of um, psychiatric paradigm, he at least gave a voice to those people that were considered mad. So as he says on 198, Freud went back to madness at the level of its language reconstituted one of the essential elements of an experience reduced to silence by positivism. He did not make a major addition to the list of psychological treatments for madness. He restored in medical thought the possibility of a dialogue with unreason. Which I think is fair. 
but he's also critical, of course, because it's Foucault. And that puts us here now into chapter 7, The Great Fear. So as unreason began to be medicalized, associated kind of with madness, it then began to occupy its own kind of social position within the social paradigm. It wasn't just seen as something like on the fringes or on the margins of society, a kind of problem that had to be either sequestered or corrected. It was still seen as that, but they were entered into the social fabric. Perhaps as a, as a kind of point of comparison to legitimize the supposed reason of those belonging to, to the social order, those properly socialized within the social order. It's a kind of, it's a way by which people confirm their own reason because they're able to say, look, unreason, according to us, is over there. And because unreason is over there, then we know we are reasonable. It's, you know, the Baudrillard thing, you know, we create Disneyland so we can say Disneyland is fake. That convinces us that the rest of America, the rest of the world for that matter, is real. So with this treatment of people, you know, with the emergence of all these houses of confinement, people started to develop a bad taste in their mouth about it, where it was believed that these houses of confinement with the mad held like esoteric, um, really violent and dirty diseases. There were places of filth and like people around it who lived around them would, would hate the fact that they did and hate these places because they represented such disgust and, and like the threat of the spread of disease. Hence, hence the great fear, a fear of the houses of confinement themselves and a fear of the mad. So although the houses of confinement claim to be curing this fear or curing the kind of disease represented in madness, their very presence kind of duplicated that fear or duplicated the kind of dirtiness the the viral disgusting virus that is madness just by their presence alone so then unreason itself became or began to be associated with disease with a with an un, with a filthiness which was all which was due to fanaticism as Foucault writes this is on like 205 it was due to fanaticism not a kind of medical uh, discovery through a t- microscope of like real disease. It was a fanaticism that would then have all these different effects about how you know houses of confinement, where they have to be situated, how they should be, present themselves. Should the mad be kind of hidden away so that the public can kind of lose sight of it? These things didn't have to do with a medical positivist approach, but rather through a kind of fear, through a great fear. So Foucault then says he, he wants to dissuade the reader from believing that um, the treatment of the mad in these houses and, you know, the people's desire to kind of put the mad away in these houses but 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 put the houses further away or, you know, not um, around them, it was not a benevolent move. It was a move purely fueled by hatred of the mad and, uh, and fueled by the kind of fear that the mad elicited. So then people sought to essentially purify houses of confinement, just like they sought to purify the mad. But in proper Foucaultian fashion, he says there was also something else going on here, where on the one hand, there was this great fear about the houses of confinement and madness generally. He says that there was also a kind of weird, uh, fantastical, a weird fascination with it as well, where people started to see the mad as being a kind of, you know, free people, a kind of people not burdened by the restraints or the shackles of society and were free to engage in their own desire, essentially. 
Now, I don't think anyone at the time would have been, you know, come out and said this outright, but Foucault kind of diagnoses, you know, the very response to it, suggesting that people, th- th- this is why at that time we kind of see the emergence of sadism for, uh, for Foucault, that is the attraction to desire. Or as he writes on 210, sadism appears at the very moment that unreason, confined for over a century and reduced to silence, reappears, no longer as an image of the world, no longer as a figura, but as language and desire. And it is no accident that sadism was born of confinement, and within the confinement that uh, Saad's, I think it's Marquis de Saad's entire oeuvre, is dominated by the images of the fortress, the cell, the cellar, the convent, the inaccessible land, which thus from form, as it were, the natural habitat of unreason. So this growing kind of societal disdain for madness uh, as being something that was, you know, presented a problem, then began to be, sought to be explained. So then there are a few, Foucault provides us another kind of list of uh, possible ways that people saw madness as being a problem or what it essentially came from. So the first one being madness and liberty. So this is the idea that madness is essentially a consequence of freedom. Uh, So this freedom is not synonymous with freedom in nature, which would imply kind of animality, but a freedom of civilization where, you know, with the growing, supposedly, let's say, trickle-down economic thing where people have more free labor time, supposedly, uh, then they are, you know, free to engage in all kinds of bad things or just to be idle, to be licentious, that is kind of lazy, which is pretty self that that gets at the heart of it there uh then number two the the association of religion and time with madness so religion essentially might make people delusional at least people might have thought that at this time and religion like the mad uh punishes which is why you know it was seen that perhaps the madhouses employed this very same method and then finally number three here Madness, Civilization, and Sensibility, it is titled. So civilization essentially fosters madness. So desire for knowledge, hallmark of civilization, Foucault says, uh, makes people stir-crazy. So civ- uh, civilization moves people from rhythm of nature, essentially to into the realm of knowledge, art, literature, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the example that he gives is how the novel was conceived or believed at the time to be a thing that kind of induces madness because then you spend too much time in the brain not enough time working with your body kind of moving yourself away from the rhythms of nature so all these pointed to a general trend or a shift in the way that madness was perceived where at a time and this was presented in the first half madness was associated with a kind of animality now it was seen as something a detachment from what Foucault calls the immediate so a detachment from the rhythms of nature, because nature is, somehow has a rhythm, but it is a rhythm that is inscribed upon it by civilization itself. So it's a, it's a very, it's like a, a trompe l'oeil. It's, it's actually a great strategy to convince people of their, you know, what is wrong with them, because you inscribe a place like nature with a kind of transcendent status. But then you code and confine this transcendence so that people seek, seek it right without knowing that you know the jackals of science of civilization of order of law have gotten there for first and essentially set its conditions so that then propels us here into 
chapter nine or chapter sorry chapter eight, the new division. So in the age of positivism, uh, the age of positivism essentially claimed to free the mad, right? So they were free from the problem that you know torture that is, or free from being you know cast out or anything like that. Uh, and they were. This wasn't done like Foucault says earlier for kind of benevolent reasons, rather for very done for very messed up reasons. And one reason was that uh, throughout the 18th century, emphasis was placed on the fact that the prisoners deserved a better fate than one that lumped them with the insane. So at a time, you know, both prisoners, kind of those uh, emblems of unreason, would be bundled up with the mad. So it was then seen because the mad represented such a bad, you know, uh, dirty, filthy, disease-ridden person or kind of character that it was not good for those people belonging to unreason, that is criminals, vagabonds, anything like that, that wouldn't fit in or, or were at risk by being among the mad. So that kind of fear, another fear there, sought to put madness on one end and unreason on another. Again, this doesn't have to do with a kind of scientific or medical intervention, but rather a very, you know, paranoid, uh, oppressive, discriminatory one. So the mad were viewed as being freed. That is, they were being treated because they were mad. But this, like I said, sound like a broken record. Uh, it wasn't because of some medical knowledge that suddenly learned how to identify madness, but because of, you know, a fear about madness being something that was harming other people. So what essentially happened then was that the sites of confinement for the mad became dis, uh, indissociable from madness itself. So while it might be viewed as a good thing that the mad were separated from unreason because it was considered a separate category, it still didn't change the fact that the mad were confined. So they weren't freed in any real way, but it was viewed as such. So as he says, but it uh, the polemic instituted by the 18th century against confinement certainly dealt with the enforced mingling of the mad and the sane, but it did not deal with the basic relation acknowledged between madness and confinement. And that, and this is on 225, the scandal lies only in the fact that the madmen are the brutal truth of confinement, the passive instrument of all that is worst about it. So the what he's essentially saying is that there can't be like a good use of confinement. If you are being confined, you are being subject to a kind of authoritative, you know, power mechanism. And this is before he develops his idea of the panopticon. Uh, he's kind of building up to that. But any time that you are confined, you are belonging to a system that is not rational. It's not truthful. It has its history in very irrational, illogical movements. Uh, and that you know, anytime you belong to that or anyone belongs to it is, is, a, is a relic. It's a kind of um, continuation of that logic. So it, it can't be celebrated. So then the whole project of confinement itself began to, began to be associated almost exclusively with madness. So as he says, and this is on 235, this was the first stage to reduce as much as possible the practice of confinement with regard to moral transgressions, family conflicts, the most benign aspects of, liber aspects of libertinage, yet to leave it untouched in its principle and with one of its major meanings intact, the internment of the mad. So then he continues on the next page, confinement is thus definitively reserved for certain categories of convicted criminals and for madmen. 
But, however, there were a number of kind of growing uh, um, developments at the time. There was a, a growing understanding of what it meant to be poor. That is, being poor was not an individual problem. It was rather a, an economic problem. And the fact that being poor had a very close link with be, being uh, supposedly mad, that it started to raise a kind of awareness about madness. So it wasn't seen as though these cat it wasn't seen as though these people were you know they were doing something wrong themselves it was rather seen as you know following kind of following freud uh, a problem with civilization or with society itself so that kind of caused a general degree of confusion and made people unaware of what they should how they should approach madness so they were like well does it it doesn't seem as though these people deserve the kind of punishment they are getting nor do they seem to belong among those people that are considered you know criminals because they don't really fit into that category. So then that propels us into the last chapter here before the conclusion. Uh, that is the birth of the asylum. So this chapter chronicles two different approaches to the asylum. From, from two different people. That were kind of sketched out by two different people. There's Tuk. Or Tuk. I don't know how you would pronounce it. And then Pinel. Or Pinel. So Tuk and Pinel. We're going to talk about Tuk first. Tuk is associated with the idea or the kind of creation of what was called the retreat with capital R. So Tuk, retreat. We'll talk about that now. So in this space, the mad were kind of pitted against religion. So at the retreat, Foucault writes, religion was part of the movement which indicated, in spite of everything, the presence of reason and madness, and which led from insanity to health. Religious segregation was a very has a very precise meaning. It does not attempt to preserve the sufferers from the profane presence of non-Quakers, but to place the insane individual within a moral element where he will be in debate with himself and his surroundings, to constitute for him a milieu where, far from being protected, he will be kept in a perpetual anxiety, ceaselessly threatened by law and transgression. So again, this, this applies to Tuke's idea of the retreat. So one of the things that was used against the mad was essentially to put them to work. But not productive work, like making things, you know, that could be useful, but just work for the sake of work, a kind of return to a rhythmic life was one of the, the ideas, which served the end or one of the tasks was to make it so that the mad would not elicit fear among others or among the mad themselves. And what this began to do, again, this is in Tuke's idea of the retreat, was to make the madman assume a kind of place of the other. So they were considered other to, you know, the, the counselors almost, the therapists that would exist there as well, but ultimately to make the madmen other to themselves. So one of the ways that this was done was uh, they would put on events, like gala-like events, where they had the mad, and whenever I say mad or madman, it's like always in air quotes because, you know, that's the term he's using. Um, they would put on these gala-like events where the madmen would have to essentially dress up in like fancy attire and play a role of like, you know, high bourgeois type, you know, lifestyle, which was totally alien to them. Now, what that did for Tuke, at least what how Foucault's reading in it, was to make the mad not only other to society, but other to themselves. Because if they see in themselves a kind of deterritorialized non-being to the world, 
to do that was to take them outside of themselves, to kind of throw them into an order that was unfamiliar to them, was kind of alien to them. And what that did um, was to kind of make them anonymous to themselves. They didn't know who they were anymore, which would ultimately, at least for two, the, the idea was to kind of make it so that they would regulate themselves. Because if they were, I guess, uh, dehumanized to the point that they didn't see themselves as being worthy as subjects, it would make it all the more easy for them to be, you know, uh, to then hate themselves and want to regulate themselves, uh, The idea, which is kind of comes off the idea in Nietzsche of chesantima, kind of hatred of one's being. Um, so they were left to kind of regulate themselves, but that didn't mean that there weren't therapists there to kind of enforce this. And one of the ways that this was enforced in the retreat, again, Tuke's idea of the retreat, just so that we're clear, was to impose observation and classification, to constantly be diagnosing, to constantly be um, kind of mandating and controlling, so that it allows very little wiggle room, very little possibility for these people. So they could then be effectively controlled, Foucault writes, without weapons and without instruments. So this for Foucault, doesn't mean that they are more free, but rather means they are kind of embedded in a more rigorous, a more thorough mode of control than before, a, a more, you know, um, ubiquitous form of control. So the lack of shackles, that is, doesn't mean, that doesn't equate freedom. So this growing infantilization of the mad made the, the whole idea of the retreat and the dynamic between therapist or psychiatrist and patient into a kind of family dynamic where the psychiatrist would then come to resemble a kind of father or parental figure, I should say, and the mad people were considered children in need of constant supervision and constant kind of uh, socialization and control where the person of reason equals adult and the mad equals a child. Uh, where he, he tells us that this is almost a result of the liberal economy of the time that played a heavy emphasis on, uh, on the family which was then echoed in, you know, Margaret Thatcher's famous, famous thing in the 20th century. Uh, so the liberal economy made it so that the mad were cured, uh, were cared for by families, essentially. So this is maybe why asylum continued the family's legacy, that is, maintaining the same kind of dynamics. And all this essentially to exercise, to kind of conjure away irregularities, to control, to shape, to mandate. Now from that, Again, Tuke's idea of the retreat. We go to Pinel, Pinel, I don't know, properly pronounce it, who gives us another way that the, the mad were approached in these kind of asylum-like places. So they were approached with silence, number one. Uh, so this was exercised by deriving mad of any kind of communication with otherness. So they were then forced to, you know, totally occupy themselves, which was supposed to kind of make them, you know, free them from their own being essentially or to make them privy to the to their own madness so then there's number two which was recognition by mirror which is pretty much the same thing but not through uh, silence where they would be shown to themselves as what um, Foucault writes as pure spectacle and absolute subject through through the mirror not not through silence uh, and then th third uh, or I should say more about that uh, different. This would be different from the retreat where, you know, there were these kind of therapeutic, um, you know, panoptic figures that would gaze at the other or gaze at the, the madman. 
there was more of an emphasis here on the mad person recognizing in themselves the problems themselves. And then third, there was perpetual judgment. So this was um, you know, pretty self-explanatory. They were constantly being judged or perpetually being judged, um, which emphasizes for Foucault the asylum's juridical character. So Pinel's approach set the stage, Foucault believes, for the asylum in the age of positivism. Uh, to which we must add, sorry, a fourth condition, that is the presence of a what was called a medical personage. So this person, not a scientist, but a, was essentially a, a supposedly a wise man, in quotes, at least that's how Foucault characterizes them. Uh, so what they both have in common then between Tuke and Pinel is this kind of persona of the medical person, where in Tuke it's like the psychiatrist or the therapist, and in Pinel it's this medical person. Uh, so this medical person edge, not silence, not science in the asylum. So this is a person that instills punishment, not because they necessarily got a degree in what it means to experience um, or to deal with madness because the knowledge didn't exist, you know, for there to be universities that studied these things. Um, but yeah, to essentially make it so that there was just a person who was believed to have some kind of authority to impose that authority within these spaces. So the control that we see in the, the asylum is not solely reserved for that space. It's, it's a microcosm for what's going on in society at large, an idea that Foucault builds more heavily in Discipline and Punish, which I will, I'll get to here at some point. Uh, and again, to kind of conclude here, at least this chapter, uh, Foucault wants to really emphasize that what we call scientific objectivity is only a product of what he calls a magical nature, not positivist truth. It comes from, you know, rights, social conditions, culture, not from a, a transcendent, all-explaining, universal account, which is, I think, a very important way to look at it. Uh, so... Yeah, and that propels us here into the, the conclusion, which is really, it's a really confusing conclusion because he brings up all these different artists and philosophers who are often considered to be mad. And that is by virtue of them being mad that they have such a place within society that because they were mad, they were able to access a kind of uh, higher truth where Foucault wants to dissuade that. So he gives the example of Nietzsche, among others, but Nietzsche is the one I'll focus on. So there's nothing uh, mad about Nietzsche's work. It reveals the extent to which madness is inscribed in the world to some extent. So mad, Foucault wasn't, uh, sorry, Nietzsche wasn't mad, and that is what made him, you know, Nietzsche. It is because the world <laughs> is mad, and Nietzsche just spoke the logic of the world, essentially. At least that's how, that's how I understand it. And it is for that reason that Nietzsche's work is not a work of madness. In fact, it actually combats madness and all these other works of art that he presents from uh, Marquis Saad and, and Goya that he he argues and this is really it's really enigmatic where he says that the work of art combats madness and it's difficult to um, I don't know to kind of reconcile but this is I'm doing my best here so the quote that speaks to me the most to kind of confirm my idea that it is not the work of art that is mad, but rather it is the work of art that speaks to the madness of the world, is um, is here. So this does not mean that madness is the only language common to the work of art and the modern world. 
but it means that through madness, a work that seems to drown in the world, to reveal there its nonsense, and to transfigure itself with the features of pathology alone, actually engages within itself the world's time, masters it, and leads it. By the madness which interrupts it, a work of art opens a void, a moment of silence, a question without answer, provokes a breach without reconciliation, where the world is forced to question itself. Which I think is the best place to, you know, the best quote to end on, and that's on 288 in my version. Uh, yeah, and that conclusion is like a, is, is short. Like it's only 10 pages or so, maybe a little less. Uh, and I feel like Foucault could have drawn it out a little more, but you know, it's, it's what we got. Um, and it's good, even just then, you know, you get quite a golden nugget of his his own thought, you know, his own his own philosophical, you know, rigor and approach. But yeah, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Like for, I hope that it was helpful. You know, I love this book. Foucault's, uh, Foucault's the man. Um, but yeah, if anyone listened and you have problems with what I, with what I did or you want to add or confuse confusions, I can try to help as much as I can. You know, 